Podcast. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Blit, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. And the truth shall set you free. And that's all. No, no, not for the real fire. We offer you the bond of family that very few can understand. Help me. Help you. I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with... Wesley. My older brother. And we are discussing one of my all-time favorite movies, 1982, The Last Unicorn. Oh, way to telegraph your review. I never thought we'd be here. You never thought we'd be having a podcast talking about your little sister's favorite movie? The, in in all the times that we watched The Last Unicorn growing up, I never thought we would be reviewing it on a podcast now. Well, I think it's wholly appropriate because we just watched a movie with unicorns and manticores. Yeah. Could unicorns have been represented any differently than between The Last Unicorn and Onward? <laughs> yes, from raccoon seagulls to the most glorious and wondrous creature alive. Yeah. So, however, this is two movies now where the manticore, which is supposed to have a man head, both has a lion head. Manticore. Manticore. You know, it's weird is this movie is so firmly ingrained in our childhoods that slightly different ages for us. But a lot of the times I didn't even know what they were saying. It just it's more the rhythm the cadence and the tone of their voices. Oh, it yeah. has a weird nonsensical musical quality that only in adulthood when you watch it does it fill in the blanks of what they're saying. Oh, totally, because, yeah. I'm sitting on the couch, didn't remember, I, I literally haven't seen this movie in probably 30 years. And I'm sitting on the couch with Kelly and the stupid butterfly is flying away and he, <laughs> it goes, he goes, counting house, counting house, and I chime in, counting, and I have no idea why. Because you know it. It's ingrained in your mind. And I remember not being willing to admit it at the time because this was your jam and I'm four years older than you. But it was still kind of scary. Like the, the oh harpy yeah. was, was actually like I still viewed it, you know, accelerated heartbeat. And I didn't expect that to happen. But I definitely remember and associate that scene with being afraid on some kid level. Dude. You know, so as an adult, I was totally prepared for complete and utter cheese, the kind of boring, nerdy cheese that I was kind of expecting from onward. You know what I mean? Swords and sorcery and wizards with long triangular sleeves and a pointed hat and a unicorn. Shendrick and the wondrous. Know, right. And and exactly. And and running through the meadows with with America singing in the background and, and butterflies and 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 uh, and technicolor, you know, forests and stuff. <laughs> and I was like, this is gonna suck. 
And I was actually really surprised by how much I remembered and how much I had completely forgotten. Like there were some parts I was dubious because you can never tell from the stuff when we grew up where the, where it came from. Because I learned in adulthood that there's a completely different version of Saturday Night Fever than the version we had. Almost across the board. That movie is kind of profane and really dark and, and hard sometimes. And every one of those scenes, they did alternate takes intended to be aired, edited for TV. And the edited for TV Saturday Night Fever version is the one that I thought I knew. It is a completely different movie. Really? And so I thought, yeah, when they get to ha Haggard? Ha ha and Hagrid. so when they get Hag to oh not Hagrid <laughs> Hagrid that, that's what I'm saying. And so when they get to the king's castle, I was like, I don't remember this. I wonder if it was this is like an addition for you know the full theatrical movie as opposed to our edited for TV version. And then slowly pieces came back to me. Uh, so I didn't remember everything. Some things I remembered so clearly that, that I could recite it despite not having seen it for decades. And others almost felt new to me. Like what? The Prince, which inexplicably played by Jeff Jeff Bridges. Inexplicably. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> so I didn't I didn't remember really the prince and the dynamic between him. And I also didn't remember the fact that she spends a good eighty percent of the movie not a unicorn. Yeah. Yeah, as this like yeah. glowy human chick who looks oddly like the Mia Farrow photo in her IMDB profile. Yeah, very interesting. We rewatched uh, upon upon getting uh, Disney Plus. We rewatched the Jungle Book, and I thought I knew that movie by heart because twenty years ago, when I worked in, in a video store, it would play on the TVs constantly, and I must have like zoned out or fast forwarded it to the middle or some of the songs or something because I really didn't remember any of it. So the Last Unicorn, um, watching it all the way through, was a pretty surreal experience. You want to know what's seriously trippy? What's that? Watching it with your daughter. Man, first time impressions. You were probably her age when you first watched it. I mean, literally, that movie came out, and by the time it was available to you, you would have been about Paloma's age. Well, I definitely know that at whatever age I saw it, I was probably too tender to actually have seen it or to, to responsibly have seen it. And I watched it again and again and again and again. I mean, that thing is... This movie is scary, and I cringed like in the first 10 minutes watching it with Paloma. She seemed a little unfazed, like she loved huh. the unicorn. She loved the enchanted forest. She was asking me questions that were, that were, that were very reasonable. She's like, why is the butterfly talking like that? Or does the butterfly why only sing? Why is it talking like that? <laughs> you know what? I was really wondering and hoping that upon viewing it as an adult, I would find meaning in the butterflies nonsense, but not, really not there's at nothing. All. No. Was, honestly, I cannot say that there weren't times upon reviewing that I didn't zone a little bit where I was taken out by a few weird things. In particular, the butterflies nonsense, which was obviously modeled after some version of some Alice in Wonderland character in one incarnation or another. Right? Yeah, the, the um, caterpillar. The Cheshire cat or, yeah. But some of that was just a little bit too modern. I, I mean, come on, we're talking about realism and uh, Suspension of Disbelief and The Last Unicorn, I think we can throw that out the window. However, that little butterfly somehow got its hands on Ray-Bans and started singing, see you later, alligator, right? Which may have been a rhyme, but which, which was also Bill Haley in the Comets in, you know, the 50s, early 60s. And, uh, and I don't know that that necessarily works. 
and even just his his regular talking, yeah, the counting house stuff it meant it meant nothing. But in this movie, it turned out that that particular character was maybe I could lose that one because it was more frustrating than anything. Oh, so you had the, the sense that the caterpillar or any character, in fact, in Alice in Wonderland, just knew things that you didn't. And, uh, you know, maybe there was a deeper meaning that you just didn't understand for whatever your age was. But the cat, the butterfly, especially this time, just kind of seemed dumb. Yeah. But it like the butterfly was on tone for this movie because there's all these weird, surreal. I mean, it's kind of a head trip. This movie wasn't made for kids, right? No, it was definitely for the stoner set in the late 70s and this one came out 82 so it might have missed the boat and then the the 82 kids the 80s kids picked it up it's hard to think who the audience was for this because don't know was it a success critically or box office wise in the 80s this this i don't know i think the last unicorn exists away from all those things it's so firmly rooted in our childhood we just kind of have to talk about emotional impact and lasting impression that that this movie made on us that's true and then how surreal it seems in an adult i mean i can i can look but i have no clue this is before box office meant anything right and even today box office really only in critical reception really only means the ability and the same thing with academy awards is if a movie the more the better it's recognized and the more money it makes it simply enables those filmmakers to be able to make films like that more maybe not necessarily the same films but it enables good filmmakers quality filmmakers to continue their work right right i guess i don't know I don't know that we need The Last Unicorn, although I will say that this uh, that project, the remake, has been in he- in development hell for years now. At one point, there was talk about Liam Neeson being attached to it. That was probably six, seven years ago at this point. And they're still holding on, but I think some of the original creators are still trying to remake it. But uh, I don't know. This may be one of those things that need, just needs to remain in uh, in 1982 as a weird anomalous movie. Yeah. So let's go a couple of things. You remember you wrote down some stuff from uh, from Apollo 11 and some of the funny things that they said. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote down the last of the red hot swamis. <laughs> Which means what? And, and that then, you take so much pride in it, Schmendrick. Yeah, and then... And then Captain Cully, Kelly and I watched it and had to rewind it twice. And she's like, there's no way that he told Schmendrick to sit down, have a taco. <laughs> that was definitely something Brian pointed out. Like, oh, man. Wh- like where? And that launched us on this whole conversation, like whether or not this <laughs> film was translated, like, was it actually a Japanese film that they redubbed and translated and they were like, let's just make it super, I don't know, American or Americana or North American and say, have a taco. So I've been resistant to this idea of Studio Ghibli movies. Um, Japanese animation looks kind of cheap to me and, and it's, it fe- always felt like it was decades behind uh, other other animation, American animation. So we looked it up because Kelly, after what it was done, said, well, that was definitely Japanese animation, right? And I said, no, no. I mean, but it's so firmly, you know, p- planted in my memory as being an American kids movie that we watched that she looked it up and she went down that rabbit hole. It turns out that this uh, movie was produced by a studio called Topcraft, which is defunct now, but the from the embers of Topcraft sprung Studio Ghibli. No way. 
Yeah, and there were a whole lot of Japanese artists in this movie. Yeah. So this wasn't Studio Ghibli, but it was the beginnings. It was the uh, the creature with legs climbing out of the, the brackish water that would eventually become Studio Ghibli. Very strange. Whoa. Um, well, yeah, I saw and, all and the s- Japanese artist credits, and I was like, maybe this was, maybe they dubbed it. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. I, I have seen, like I own Princess Mononoke and a few others on video, and I know that the dubs are sometimes wildly off from oh, the Japanese, man. the literal translations, and sometimes they're they're pretty funny. I don't know that Have a Taco was anybody's version of a translation or just something to kind of grab American. I, I have no idea. Like I said, it's so, so strange. But Mononoke is a good reference because I think totally these films are pretty similar and terrifying. Oh, See, Mononoke was another movie that I bought sight unseen because someone told them, told me that it was amazing and that I would love it. And of all the Studio Ghibli movies, I can see a lot of good things in that movie. It is it is gross and unpleasant I a agree. lot of the time. Yeah. And certainly not intended for kids. Um, strange. You know, uh, the, the, the wolf and... and and in this movie too, there were so there were elements that I kind of compared. I guess if you were going to film a live action version, it would be something like uh, the Never Ending Story, where you have uh, the Red Bull was kind of like the nothing or the wolf, the emissary of the nothing, oh, yeah. relentlessly pursuing her across across the the land Whoa. and stuff. And the Red Bull in itself was terrifying. Yeah, uh, did not give her wings, and it was really hard to to watch some of that stuff as a kid. So it's obvious that it wasn't necessarily for children just because of the adult themes. I mean, the tree with the huge boobs. And it was oh, like, yeah. I love you. And stuff. So bizarre. Weird. And so I had noted that and thought, okay, well, there's tree boobs and there's definitely harpy boobs, three of them. <laughs> and yet there were no human boobs. I guess there's like one quick shot of a human boob. Where? Um. I, I guess when she's uh, when she stands up and she changes into the unicorn again, I'm not really sure. Oh, I wasn't yeah, looking yeah. for animated human boobs. All I'm saying is when they were hanging low on the harpy and they were definitely there in the tree and Schmendrick was threatened to be smothered by them, it was pretty obvious, but definitely not a theme for kids. The tree monster boob monster, I didn't remember. So I don't know if that was you. You remembered it. I did not remember uh, that. Well, I, I did because boobs. But um, it, uh, one other thing that I noted too was the harpy, which was just a giant vulture-looking thing. And I don't didn't really have a grasp for fantasy monsters at the time. But I got to say, the weird three-boobed harpy and the fact that they were just out kind of gave it a more visceral, real, not safe monster kind of feel. What was like it? it made the, it the third boob. No, it just the fact that it was not a cartoon animal in a way that the the visual aesthetic. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer and emotional intelligence coach and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. ElectroCast. 
it was definitely meant to be threatening, and it was, I think, because it was so visually unsettling. Yeah, maybe, I mean, just the graphic nature of it took it to that next level. Yeah, and the Red Bull was was not as scary overtly, but still, you were afraid of its sort of relentless pursuit of all the unicorns. And even the unicorn tide, in a way, was kind of scary and overwhelming. Oh, you mean when the unicorns kind of appear in the froth of the sea? Yeah. I mean, by the time we saw it again in uh, in Lord of the Rings, it was more heroic. But in this way, it was kind of scary because you knew that, that, that Haggard wasn't going to make it out of there. Oh, yeah. Well, he was just yeah. a sad, mean old king. He was all Yeah, but you like, don't expect that of kings, especially in kids' movies. Well, he's like the... He's like the Daniel Plainview of animated kings. <laughs> That's the first time, right? That King Haggard from The Last Unicorn was, was, has been compared to Daniel Plainview. <laughs> Christopher Lee, Daniel Day-Lewis, they both have some, you know, gravitas. Now that I'll give you. And there's a Lord of the Rings connection in there too, although I don't think we saw him until the next movie. King Haggard surprised me. I, I didn't remember how kind of cruel and dark he was. I didn't remember that the prince was not his son. I'm surprised I didn't really remember or connect to the prince because I would probably, maybe I was too young to have crushes or something like that because I definitely remember like the prince from Cinderella and thinking he was handsome and stuff like that. But the character that really stuck out to me this time, watching it all these years later, was Molly Grew. Oh, yeah. So she was an interesting character. Uh, I remember her as just being the frizzy, frowsy sidekick. But she was an interesting character, particularly because she left her husband, right? right? Uh, Captain Cully was her husband or her partner or mate or whatever. And, okay, fine. So we trade up one character for another, and she follows the unicorn because she loves unicorns. But she loved it on a, such a profound level that she contemplated the unicorn's timing in her life, you know, sort of facing her aging and mortality and and her sort of childhood dreams. Very serious themes for this otherwise kind of side character that we don't meet through until halfway through the movie. Yeah, I felt some weird bitterness and remorse with her when she met the unicorn or when she recognized what she was and in Amalthea, what did she say? She says, like, um, how I, dare you? How, da- how yes. dare Yes. <laughs> She's like, how dare yeah. you? And she gets all pissed at her and stuff. Like, it was really weird. And she's just, she just super stuck out to me. She was all brave. She gets Schmendrick to do what he needs to do to turn her back into a unicorn. Yep. A strange re- sort of resonant character for someone that we meet halfway through the movie and who we sort of disregard because she comes with these bands of, of, of morons and loves Robin Hood and Maid Marian and these sort of legends. Yeah, I don't know what that was all about. And why did they have to walk directly through the fire? Just to prove a point? I feel like so many disconnected themes in this movie or stuff that we figured as a kid, uh, I don't know, I don't understand that, doesn't make sense, but look, unicorns. But as an adult, too, they didn't quite pass muster. Like, that was random. So random. It did feel, at some parts, kind of cheap and dated, even for 1982. Obviously, it's going to show its age a little bit here, no matter what. But I think from the outset, 
very early on in the early uh, kind of tracking scene through the forest, there were three levels of foreground before the background, the, the mat or whatever of the background of the trees moving, which I thought was an unexpected level of, of depth and sophistication that thought, oh man, man, they're coming hard with like the big guns right out of the gate. It could have been a simple tracking shot of a static image, but it wasn't. No. And uh, it yeah, was, so. Yeah, it was layered. It was complex. Even the title sequence had some sophistication to it with the little tableaus coming to life. I mean, they definitely took their time with the unicorn itself. It had this weird, glossy, gossamer, glowy quality to it. Like it really, she, the unicorn and Amalthea glowed. And, yeah. and also, I think even after that, they put a hazy filter on it, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was still kind of breathtakingly beautiful in a weird kind of trippy, surrealistic way. I mean, there was, so there, I mean, that definitely worked, but I'm still trying to put my finger on what this movie means. Is it mean, does no it mean idea. that, <laughs> come on, that magic is in the world? Yes, it was kind of a fantasy movie where you're like, okay, well, what happens in fantasy movies? You know, the dead talk. So we'll have a talking skeleton. Oh, my God. And that scene's going to go on for five minutes. That is. And he's going to drink to wine and make awkward noises. And I remember every stitch, every frame of that that crazy scene. 100%. That that skeleton is is what I remember the most about this movie. And I, I knew that scene word for word it's kind of weird because i kind of blended it together in my mind with the talking skeleton at the pirates of the caribbean yeah but well it's the same thing it's the, it's the except the ones in pirates of the caribbean didn't blush i mean there was a the, the cat someone was like oh the cat suffered a tragedy presumably at sea so let's fit it with a, a wooden leg and a custom a little cat eye patch why was but it's got to talk well, because it talked like a pirate, so it had to look like a pirate. But why pirate cat? This is an amalgamation of fantasy <laughs> themes. And in a way that I think was maybe slightly less effective than some of the more recent ones. And then in the end, he's like, I got a secret. I got an eye. <laughs> but I wore a patch just for the effect. Yeah. You got to sell it, man. You got to own it. I mean, okay. So I'll think about this more, but I think that what this movie boils down to is. There's still magic in the world, and the unicorns are out there. You just don't know. And you just don't know. And believe or something or whatever. You know who, you know who believes? Who? America. <laughs> who provided the songs for this movie, All Earnest. <sighs> and they used Man's Road like three times. Man's Road. That song gives me the chills and the heebie-jeebies at the same time. And and strangely, in a folky kind of non-dated way, it holds up. Mia Farrow, not so much. I don't know why they let her sing. Just a little pitchy dog. Did you did you notice though that there are two singing voices for the unicorn? Nope, I did not. Well, she can't sing. Yeah, they chose the wrong one apparently. Yeah, no. The in within the movie, she sings twice, and one time it's horrible, and one time it's great. Uh, I don't know. I just sort of transferred the horribleness onto the other one because I thought I remember noting, oh, Mia Farrow may be a good voice, but not not so much on the singing front. I don't know. She, I mean, it's weird. I feel like she inspired it visually, but I don't know if she was the right choice even for the voice. So I don't know. Was it good to revisit? 
It was. It was good and satisfying to revisit. I expected to be disappointed by the cheesiness, and this edged over the top for me. Uh, I don't know that anyone needs to rush out and watch The Last Unicorn. I think we should note in these reviews that, you know, where the availability is of some of these movies, because some of them we have to work hard to get. The Last Unicorn at the moment is available on HBO Now. Yeah, and go and right. So you can. So if you want to watch it, I don't know that you have to go and buy the deluxe edition DVD to track this one down to see it. But it definitely was over the line for me, and I would give it an all right rating. Um, yeah, so it holds up. Revisiting, I was pleasantly surprised by how they just took these weird, disparate themes, put them together in a in a fantasy movie that was unlike anything that we've seen recently, and uh, and held together just from a sheer entertainment standpoint. Yeah, it's hard to judge this thing objectively, but I do think that it doesn't feel any more dated or perhaps any more timeless for that matter than some of the other Studio Ghibli films. I agree with I agree with you. I think that's kind of the you kind of hit on it is that uh it definitely has a a Japanese animation feel. They made a unique and interesting and strangely complex unicorn movie. <laughs> So yeah, I was uh, I was happy with it. I like how you say unicorn movie like that's some kind of movie genre. I mean, I think it's kind of one, it's like alone in its class kind of a thing. You know, I thought that too. And then when I pitched the idea to Kelly of watching The Last Unicorn with me in preparation for this review, uh, she said, has your sister seen Unico? And I said, what? And what? so apparently maybe there's another unicorn movie out there, Unico which we may have to check out. All right. I guess add it to the list. Are yep. there any other unicorn movies out there? Let us know. 818-835-0473. How's that for a call to action? Or whatever movies at gmail.com. An all right from Wes, a good from Iris. That's our review on The Last Unicorn, the movie that represents, closely most represents my childhood. So thanks for listening. Uh, thank you for being Patreon patrons and supporters. We really appreciate it. Can't do this without you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. If you're a working professional wondering what's next for your career, you've come to the right place. Whether you're looking for a promotion, growth, or a potential career transition, look no further. With over 30 years working in a variety of industries, I share my insider knowledge with those ready to get ahead on career advancement with Craig Ansell. Tune in to get your strategies for success. Welcome explorers of the human experience. This is Let's Talk Soul and I'm your host Claudia Monicelli. We're not afraid of the great mysteries of existence here. Soul versus consciousness, we're on it. Spirituality versus science, we've got that covered too. Join us in navigating these profound topics with wisdom, curiosity, and a dash of audacity. Whether you're a spiritual veteran or just starting your journey, Let's Talk Soul is your passport to the unknown. Let's Talk Soul, diving into the depths of the human spirit. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Electric Acid.